Well, this morning as uh, I prepared this week and thought through what to teach as we get ready for what's coming with the, the survey through the Bible, I thought about, well, we've been through Judges. I could do a recap of that. No. Uh, I could, we, we've been through Ruth. Uh, I thought, you know what? There's a whole other testament uh, that, that we haven't been in in a while. So this morning, we're going to be in John chapter 6. And John is a, a special book to me. Uh, when I was in college over at Hendricks, uh, an arrogant sophomore, uh, I had a friend group that were devout Christians that hung out with me. And I felt like I was one of them until one day when a friend in casual conversation said, hey, I've been talking to all of our friends, and we don't think you're a Christian. And I'm just going to tell you, that angered me. Uh, I was like, how dare you? Uh, and see if any of this sounds familiar. How dare you judge me and tell me what you think and, and, and assume something about me? And I started giving them my list. Well, I'm a good person. Uh, everybody likes me. I don't do bad things. I'm not partying all weekend like half of, or okay, 85% of Hendrix is. Uh, I mean, I'm, I went to church all my life. All these things I just kept saying. So, bam, I'm a Christian. And instead of arguing with me point by point, instead of, you know, making it worse than it was because I, I was pretty upset, my friend looked at me and said, will you do me a favor? Will you read the Gospel of John? And in my arrogant 19-year-old self, I'm like, you bet I will. I'll show you. I'll read John so big. And, and then I'll say, ha, I am a Christian. And it was reading through the Gospel of John. Every night, going to bed, crying and weeping because of seeing clearly who Jesus was, what he had done, and how short I fell, and how in need of a Savior I was, <laughs> and, and the great need of a Savior that I had that brought me to faith in Christ. So John holds a, a special place in my heart, and uh, we got a partner this morning, okay? Uh, there are 71 verses. Uh, I was a little ambitious and bit off a little more than we can handle, unless you guys want to be here till 3 or 4 this afternoon. Uh, maybe that was part of your commitment about the game last night. I'll stay at church as long as it goes. For those people, we will have an extended version. Um, but you guys have to do the work this week. You have to get into John chapter 6 and read through it, because we're, we're going to kind of do an overview, and some things we're going to go down and, and get in the nitty-gritty, and some things we're just going to say, hey, this is what happened, and move right along, okay? So this week, John chapter 6, I need you to be in there. So we're going to start off and just kind of look at the author, the date, and kind of the purpose of the Gospel of John, and then we're going to jump right in, okay? All right, here we go. Uh, crazy thing, the author of the Gospel of John is a dude named John. I know, I was shocked as well. Uh, John is a Jewish fisherman. He had a brother named James, the son of Zebedee. Uh, this is the guy that, as Jesus walked by, he said, come follow me. And these two brothers left their dad and their nets and followed Jesus. It's that John. Uh, they are the ones who, uh, in one of my favorite scenes in the Bible, uh, Jesus requests some assistance from the Samaritans. They're like, why would we help you? And James and John are like, 
Jesus, just give me the word and we will call fire from heaven down to destroy them. You just, you just tell us we're ready to back you up. And he's like, no. And I love that picture of them feeling like in the midst of the one who created all and is greater than all and has all the power in the world, they are like, let me defend you. We will call down fire. He's like, where were you when I created it? Anyway, I, I won't digress there. Uh, he's also an eyewitness. John is an eyewitness account of what he saw Jesus do and say. And John was in the inner circle. There, there's 12 disciples, and there's four that are always listed at the top. Simon, Andrew, James, John. When you see all the lists in the Gospels, these are always the top four. John is in the inner circle. There were three that seemed to be in the, the most important things that happened with Jesus, including the transfiguration. In the Gospel, he refers to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. And you got to like that about him, right? Uh, in one of the scenes towards the end where uh, the they just heard the tomb is empty. He is the one that says, and the disciple whom Jesus loved beat Peter to the tomb. I, I just love that picture that he makes a point to say, we raced and I won. I wanted to see the empty tomb more than Peter. Ha, take that, Peter. Um, also, uh, on the cross, as Jesus saw his mother and knew he was about ready to die, he saw the disciple whom he loved, John, and said, take care of my mom. This is who he entrusted with his mother. Um, finally, John is a prolific author. He has uh, not just one bestseller, but five. Uh, he is the author of 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, as well as Revelation. And may I can't wait till we get towards that end. Uh, a lot of people in our church ask us to go through Revelation, we will have one Sunday in Revelation in many, many Sundays down the road. So anyway, this, that's the Gospel of John. That's kind of where we're going. Uh, the dates are about 65 to 95 AD. Uh, it's hard to pinpoint that, but I love how it's moving closer and closer to uh, the life of Jesus. I mean, it's, it's an eyewitness account, and there's not much distance between when it happened and when it was written down. Uh, in seminary, every time we interact with a book of the Bible, the professor makes us come up with the purpose and the main verse and all this stuff, and, it, and it's pretty hard. Uh, most of the books, it is difficult to pinpoint exactly what's, what their intention is, but not with our buddy John. Uh, he makes it very easy for us. John 20, 30 through 31, he says, Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written, uh, recorded, I'm sorry, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And I saw that purpose realized in my life because I read those words and saw the miraculous signs that John did record and realized Jesus is the Christ. So we're going to jump into John chapter 6, and as we get into it, I'm going to catch us up to speed of where we're going to put the, uh, well, I'm so excited to get into it, I forgot I had two more slides. Uh, in John, there's seven signs, there's seven miracles that John records. Uh, 
And, and it's just really pointed. As you read through John, you just go, man, John is going out of his way to say Jesus is like no other. Jesus is greater than. Jesus is more than. And he just keeps pointing of how amazing Jesus is. And then there's seven I am statements in the, in the Gospel of John where Jesus is revealing himself piece by piece to the people and to his disciples, making himself known. And uh, in my life, there are times where I need each one of those I am's to be reminded of. Sometimes I need the good shepherd. Sometimes I need the way, the truth, and the life. Sometimes I need the light. And these names of Jesus are, are the way he's presenting himself to the audience. Uh, because this is so important, and I'm just like, man, it's so good to be reminded of, of who Jesus is. And I know our youth ministry is going through these I am statements in youth. Uh, it's youth, right? Or is it college? It's you. Oh, man, it's our college group. Sorry, Andrew. I gave, uh, I, I gave Alan credit. Uh, I put these in our growth guide. So in our bulletin, you may or may not know, uh, there's actually a section on this little handout that is a, a growth guide with verses that you can read every day. And so in order to help, if you need help uh, coming up with something to read and study, uh, I have the seven I am statements mapped out for you for this week. Now we're going to jump into chapter six. And what's happened is Jesus has amassed a pretty big following. People have seen these miracles, these healings that he's been doing, and that piques their interest. His fame is spreading, and more and more people are gathering and following him wherever he goes. And in chapter 4, we pick up the story, and it's the Jewish Passover feast uh, time, and, and that's drawing near. And Jesus looks up, and he sees a great crowd coming towards him. And he said to Philip, "'Where shall we buy bread for these people to eat?' He asked this only to test him, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. Philip answered, eight months' wages would not be enough bread for each one to have a bite. Another disciple, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, uh, spoke up. He said, here is a boy with five, loaves of bar or five barley loaves and two small fish, but how far will they go among so many? So here we have the, the setting. We've got this massive crowd that's following. Jesus, knowing what he's going to do, turns to Philip and says, where are we going to get enough food for all these people? Poor Philip. <laughs> Poor Philip. Uh, Philip thinks like I do. Well, Lord, there's a lot of supply chain, chain issues. Uh, Sam's isn't fully stocked. I'd, I'd, and if, even if there weren't those issues... That's a lot of money to feed this many people. If we took eight months of wages, we couldn't even give everybody a Sam's sample-sized bite of food. And if you've ever been to Sam's, a little sample is never enough, is it? So you got to make that journey again and like bring a hat that you put on and talk in a different voice. I mean, so, so he's saying it's, it's just not doable. And Philip goes practical. Where are we gonna, how are we going to feed them? We can't do it. We don't have the resources. We don't have the means to do it. Meanwhile, Andrew is going through the crowd. And he comes across this, this boy. And the Greek is little boy. Like, 
there is purposeful to say, this is a little dude. This is a young child. And he's got a young child's meal. He's got five barley loaves. That, and, and I love Walmart brands, so don't, don't be upset with me. But it's like the Walmart brand of, of uh, loaves of bread. It's not the good stuff. And so this little boy has a little meal that consists of barley loaves and two fish. Now, how many people fish? Yeah, I mean, once you catch one like this, like I always do, uh, you, you hang that on the wall, right? Well, the, the fish that this little boy has is more like the bait you would throw out to try to catch those fish. They're small fish, too. Everything about this is saying, this is insignificant. Even the little boy, he's not even counted in the number of people because it was only the men. It wasn't the women and children that were counted, just the men. And so the, the insignificance is being emphasized here. And Andrew doubts how that little insignificant amount would do anything. But even in that doubt, he brings it forward. Even in that doubt, he speaks up and goes, I don't know how this is going to work out, but this is what we got. And I love that picture. Because too often, we find ourselves at a loss. We're in a situation where we're not sure how it's going to turn out. Andrew steps up. He says, this is what we have. And Jesus says, let's eat. Jesus said, have the people sit down. There was plenty of grass in that place, and the men sat down, about 5,000 of them. Jesus took the loaves, gave thanks, and distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish. When they had all had enough to eat, he said to the disciples, gather the pieces that are left over. Let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and filled 12 baskets with the pieces of the five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. Jesus goes, you know, that isn't enough to feed 10,000 unless you put it in my hands. Because when you add the, the women and the children to that 5,000 count, that's the men, I mean, you're feeding 10,000 people. And it can't be done with five loaves and two fish unless it's in the hands of Jesus. And Andrew brought what he had, and Jesus multiplied it and fed it until they had everything they wanted. And this was significant, because in that time of poverty, in that time of uh, hunger, they probably hadn't eaten in a while. They weren't sure where their next meal was. They're up on this mountainside, and Jesus filled their bellies. But he didn't just fill their bellies. He filled the leftover baskets. He provided enough leftovers for those disciples, the 12 disciples had 12 baskets. So as they continued on their journey, they were provided for even more than expected. Man, what a great picture of uh, an example for us. Because if you're like me, often when we face a, different, a, a special situation or uh, we have a relationship or different things that are, are difficult and we're, we're, God lays something on our heart that he wants us to do, we turn to Philip. We go practical. Well, God, you want me to reach out to that person? You want me to support that missionary? You want me to, to go uh, love on that person? I, I'm not 
equipped. I don't have what I need. I don't have enough money. I don't have enough ability. I don't have enough time. I don't have uh, the gifting. I don't have the personality. I mean, we have all these excuses going, I'm not enough. And Jesus is like, I am. And in those situations, we need to remember that's not about us. It's about him. And we speak up and we step out in faith and say, Jesus, this is all I got. But part of what I got is you, and you are more than enough. Because Jesus is able to, and, and more than enough in every situation we face. So we need to come to him even when our doubt exceeds our resources and wait to be amazed. How many times has our doubt exceeded our resources and prevented us from taking it to Jesus? You may be facing that situation right now that you're kind of frozen or maybe even retreating a little bit because you're like, I don't see how this can play out. I feel like Jesus has laid this on my heart. It doesn't make sense. I don't, I'm not enough. I don't have enough. I don't know how to make this work. And Jesus says, bring it to me even in your doubt. Let me amaze you with how I am more than enough. The next section is Jesus walking on water, and this is one of those we're going to go out and just go, hey, Jesus took a long stroll on the water. About three to three and a half miles, he walked out to the boat. The guys were out there rowing. They had left before Jesus. Jesus had to go up to a mountainside by himself because after the people's bellies were full, they're like, hey, this dude fed us. We should make him king. He's like, nope, not yet. So he goes up to the mountainside. Disciples take off to, to go to their next location. Later on, Jesus comes down. There's no boats. He doesn't need them. He walks out to them. They're facing the strong, stiff wind and having trouble making progress to get across. They see Jesus. They're terrified. He goes, hey, it's me. And they're like, oh, good, it's just you. Uh, so they get him in the boat and immediately arrives at his destination. Jesus says, I'm greater than the elements and the obstacles. Two miracles in chapter 6 of the 7. So we enter this question and answer time. Because the crowds the next day come out and go, Hey, where's Jesus? Where are the disciples? And they're looking around. They look at the shoreline. There was one boat. It took off the night before with the disciples. And Jesus wasn't with them. So they're like, he's got to be here somewhere. They can't find him. So they decide, you know what? Let's get in a boat and cross over and see if we can find him over there. Now they see Jesus, and I love the surprise in their voice. When they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked, Rabbi, when did you get here? Jesus answered, very truly I tell you, you are looking for me not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Do not work for food that perishes but for food that endures to eternal life. Dun, dun, dun. Which the Son of Man will give you. For on him, God the Father has placed his seal of approval. So they come over and they're like, wait, how, when did you get here, Jesus? We, we didn't even expect you. Do you come here often? He's like, dude, I know why you're here. You're not here because you saw something miraculous and think there is more to this guy that meets the eye. He might be the prophesied one. He might be the chosen one. He might be the Messiah. You came here thinking, I'm going to get a free lunch. 
what's for, what's for lunch, Jesus? I didn't know you were going to be here, but since we're all here, let's go. Jesus corrects him and says, man, I met your physical need, but what you really need from me is me to meet your spiritual need. Well, that, that gets their attention. They're like, okay, so we're not supposed to work for food that perishes. What are the works that God requires? And Jesus answered, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. You know, when I hear people go, hey, what's required? What I hear is, what's the least I can do? What's the, the lowest bar I can step over in order to accomplish what you want? And that just doesn't really show a heart pursuing God, does it? Not what's the least, but how worthy is he? It should be the question. And Jesus says, hey, I mean, you guys are used to uh, sacrifices and festivals and rituals and laws and you know, knowing what you need to do in order uh, to please God, but this is what it is. The work of God is to believe in the one whom he sent. And Jesus is building a case in his answers for who the answer to this is. So they asked him, thinking he's talking about himself, what sign then will you give that we may see it and believe you? All right, so you're the one that we're supposed to believe in? You're saying God sent you? All right, what you got? Show me a miracle. Let us evaluate. But let me tell you, the standard we're evaluating you on is Moses. Because Moses in the wilderness, he gave us bread from heaven. And you just gave us barley loaves yesterday. So what you got? Let's see your miracle. You perform it. And we'll let you know if we can believe. Jesus said to them, Very truly I tell you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven. Man, Moses did not go down to the store, buy all the supplies, spend all that time preparing it, and then lay it out on the field every day for you to pick up. That was not Moses. But it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven, For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Okay, so he's using the the exodus, he's using the time in the desert, and what I've seen over and over as I study and, and going through these seminary classes is so much is tied to the exodus. It is such a foreshadowing of all that's to come. And so Jesus is using their language. You, you're referencing manna from heaven. Let me tell you, manna has come that is unlike the manna your ancestors had. It's going to change your eternity. Can Do you have eyes to see? Well, at this, they're like, sir, give us this bread always. Yes, bread that gives life to, yes, I'm in. What time is lunch every day? I'll be there. And doesn't this sound uh, familiar from the Gospel of John? A few chapters before, Jesus goes up to a well, and there's a Samaritan woman, and she's drawing water. And he goes, hey, give me a drink. She's like, you don't have anything to draw water. I'm not going to help you. He's like, if you knew who asked, you would ask him, and he would give you living water that you would never thirst again. She's like, I'm in. Give me that. I want that. I am so sick of coming up here and drawing water. Now the Israelites, the Jews, are saying, that bread, live, yes, give it to me always. We would love for you to feed this to us every day. 
You know, it's interesting, our, our worship pastor Ron pointed out to me in between services, uh, this is kind of the same grumble uh, as we heard in the Exodus. They're like, hey, we don't have enough food to eat. And God provides manna from heaven. And after a while, they're like, I'm tired of manna from heaven. What else you got? We'd be better off going back to, to Egypt and be enslaved by them. At least we'd be fed. Here they're like, hey, we want that bread. We, we need more bread. We want you to take care of our physical needs. And this is the start of the I am statements. Because Jesus has been building a case. He's been putting it all together. He uses the feeding of the 5,000 to whet their appetite for this bread. And now he's going to reveal what it's all about. So in these 15 verses, this is what we're going to see. And, and this is where we're going to have to do some work. I'm giving you the overall. We're going to read through it. And you're going to have to listen for the repetitions, okay? Jesus is going to reveal his identity. He's going to say, I am the bread of life. He's going to reveal his purpose. And it's very simple, to do God's will, not losing any that have been given to him. Jesus is going to reveal his origin, uh, he, that he came down from heaven. As we just saw in these previous verses, he continues that theme as we go forward. He's going to reveal his plan to raise up believers on the last day, another repetition that we're going to see throughout this passage. Jesus reveals his sacrifice, and this is the part that gets people a little ruffled. He uses the flesh analogy five times, and then he throws in blood three times. And finally, Jesus is going to reveal his offer. He is revealing that he is the life. And life is just so prevalent in this passage. He's standing there. He's offering them what they need spiritually, and all they can think about is physically. And their eyes are blind, and their ears are deaf to this truth that he is trying to give them. And we're going to see in the end that they reject it. So here we go. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. But as I told you, you have seen me and still do not believe. All those the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never drive away. For I have come down from heaven. I have come down from heaven, not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of those he has given me, but raise them up on the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks at the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise them up the last day. One of the commentators I read through just summarized these verses so well. Uh, he said, he desired that men should receive him, not simply for what he might give them, but for what he might be to them. They kept coming to him going, hey, free lunch, free lunch. We want this bread. That Just keep feeding it to us. We, we love it. We'll just keep getting it over and over again. And he's like, you are coming to me for what you want from me. But I could be life for you. I could change your eternity. I could give you a relationship with the creator of the universe that will change your life. But you're not seeing it. At this, the Jews began to grumble saying, I am the bread that came down from heaven. Is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? 
How can he now say, I came down from heaven? Instead of hearing the truth he's trying to give, they fixate on this, I came down from heaven. They're like, hey, you're identifying yourself as the bread of life. You're identifying that you came from heaven, but you're Joe's boy. We know Joe. We know Mary. We know where you're from. How on earth are you saying that you came down from heaven? We know you're from that little town over there. That doesn't make sense. Jesus, knowing that they're grumbling, says, Stop grumbling among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them, and I will raise them up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, They will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard the Father and learned from him comes to me. No one has ever seen the Father except the one who is from God. He's saying, I am close to the Father. I am the Father in one. I am been with, Jesus, or with the, the Lord God. He has sent me himself. You guys don't see this connection, and you need to. Very truly, I tell you, the one who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate manna in the wilderness, and they died. But here, but there is the bread that comes down from heaven again, which anyone may eat and not die. When you not die, you actually live. So there's another living. I am the living bread that comes down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I give, will give for the life of the world. Jesus goes from identifying himself to kind of telling him, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to lay my life down for you. I am going to be put to death on your behalf. And remember, it's Passover time and, and or Passover feast time, and that's remembering the Passover in Egypt when they took a lamb, and John calls Jesus the Lamb of God. They slaughter him, they put the blood over the threshold of their door, and they have to consume wholly, uh, eating all, all of the lamb. Uh, and during the Passover, and the angel of death would pass over and pass by all the doors that had the mark of the blood. And here Jesus is saying, I am going to allow myself to be a sacrifice on your behalf. Another quote from the same guy. He had been delegated by the Father to have life, to give life, to secure life, and to restore life. Well, now the Jews began to argue among themselves, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? Suddenly they're like, this is cannibal Jesus. This makes no sense. I, I just can't comprehend this. They're missing the metaphor. They've been fed. We're talking about bread. We're talking about life. Trying to make all the connections, and they just don't get it. And if Jesus had had a communications director, they probably would have had him clean it up a different way than what he did. Because he went like triple down here. He said, Very truly I tell you, that unless you eat of the flesh of the Son of Man and drink of his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. For my flesh is real food and blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood, oh my goodness, Jesus, what are you doing? Uh, is, and my blood is real drink. And, Remains in me and I in them, just as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father. So the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Your ancestors ate manna and died. But whoever feeds on this bread 
will live forever. He said this while teaching in a synagogue in Capernaum. Jesus just goes all in. They were upset about the flesh, so he throws in blood. He's trying to make it to where there is just no escaping the fact that he's not talking about cannibalism. Because in the Jewish religion, they didn't eat food that had blood in it. But they don't get it. And this doubt and this misunderstanding doesn't just affect the the crowd that he calls the Jews in this passage, but he goes one level closer and says, On hearing it, many of his disciples said, This is a hard teaching. Jesus had been deemed the rabbi of many disciples that have been following him, that have been sitting at his feet and learning and, and being taught by him. And they start grumbling amongst themselves. It's like, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? And Jesus explains, hey, this, this is a big deal. If you can't understand this, how are you going to react when I ascend into heaven? When I return, I've come down, and when I go back... I mean, there's going to be people that see that. You're not going to be ready for that if you can't accept this truth. And then one of the hardest uh, verses in the Bible that over the years as I have read, it just brings tears to my eyes. John 6, 66 says, From this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. They got to that point. They had been following him. The the masses because of what he would do for them. The disciples because they're like, hey, this rabbi is unlike the other rabbis. We should follow him. We should learn from him. We should be part of his gang. But at this hard teaching, there was a mass exodus away from Jesus. They said, nope. All that I left, my family, my occupation, my people, the, the normal rhythms of my life. I left it all to follow Jesus. And now at this point I go, that's better. Sounds like the Israelites in the desert doesn't. Like, man, we're tired of manna. If we would just go back to Egypt, it would be better. Jesus looks at his 12, another grouping. So we go, the Jews, the masses, the disciples that are following him, and now the 12. He says, what about you guys? What about you? And I love Peter. He, he swings for the fences. Sometimes he misses and sometimes he hits a home run. And in this moment of mass exodus, of all the grumbling, complaining, the chaos that's going on, Peter steps up and says, Lord, to whom would we go? You have the words of eternal life. You have come to, we have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. God, we have weighed out our options, and we're all in, because we have a settled understanding that you are the one. You are the greater one. You are the good one. You are the Messiah. You are the Holy One. Where else would we turn? All those people that are leaving or going back to their old lives, that is not where life is. It's only found in you. Final quote. We believed and have known. This shows a fixed and settled decision. Peter is affirming that they have reached a final conviction that Jesus is indeed the Holy One of God. They have anchored down in their belief 
and nothing is going to sway them. No hard teaching, no mass exodus, not contingent on what other people are doing. They are in because they understand he is the one. And that's the question for us. In this time of turmoil, in this time of people walking away from the faith, this time of truth going against culture and people saying, I go with culture. Maybe even in our colleges, you're in a class where they're trying to give you a truth that goes against Scripture, and it's like, man, that's a hard teaching. I'm not really sure how to answer that. I mean, so much is pushing against our faith to try to sway us, to turn away. Are you settled on who Jesus is and that he is the only place life is found? Come what may, you are there to stay. I just made that up. Disciples stand firm in their conviction that Jesus is where life is found, even as others jump ship. Don't jump ship. There is no other, just Jesus. Here's a couple next steps as we bring out the worship band because I'm a, a minute late. Hey, this week, what, what do you need to do? What's the Holy Spirit calling you to do? Is it you need to be honest with someone in your life this week about your struggles? Maybe it's doctrine, maybe it's sin. Uh, and, and that doctrine or that sin struggle is hindering you from your, in your desire to pursue Christ. Man, make that known. Find someone you can trust and confide in them. Uh, we're about ready to have our prayer team come under love and hope. Maybe you need to come up and be prayed with uh, even this morning. Encourage someone around you this week in the truth that Jesus is where life is found. Maybe it's encourage yourself. Maybe you're the one that's struggling and you need to look in the mirror and go, Jesus, he's the only one. Because all else falls short. Man, whatever the Lord has for you this week, uh, obey and follow him because he is worthy.